host, Joanne Music. We have a great show for you today in the studio. We actually have all of Music and Music present. Earl is here today with us. John Denholm is here today with us. And we've got a lot to talk about. Um, hope you enjoyed our little intro today with uh, I Fought the Law and the Law One. That's Earl's pick for the day. Trying a little diversity, see what our audience thinks about that one. Um, but uh, I want to remind our listeners that we are taking calls. If you have your calls, you can call us at 281-447-1114. You can also hit us up on Twitter at LegalSpeakMM or on Facebook. Um, how's everybody today? Earl, how are you? I'm, I'm doing well, Joanne. John? John. John was out uh, just a minute ago rustling up the Sheriff's Department for us. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. Okay. Um, you know, and I, I mentioned this rustling up the sheriff's department. Um, we have an issue that we kind of wanted to talk about today because uh, it appears that under basically nothing more than an administrative nightmare, uh, people can be held in custody uh, because there's a bond, but nobody will acknowledge the bond or allow the bond to be posted. So let me just back up for just a second and, and cue our listeners in into what we're going to be talking about. Um, first of all, this is a unique case because this is a juvenile case, and typically juveniles are not subject to bond. They are either released or detained, uh, to, released to a parent or guardian or detained in the detention center, and they're generally not subject to bond. However, there is a provision under the code that allows somebody who is now an adult to be arrested and detained for an offense that may have occurred, uh, or at least allegation of an offense that may have occurred before that person became an adult. So here we're talking about, you know, five, six years ago, uh, some potential criminal conduct occurred and uh, was not discovered or, or prosecuted until after the person became an adult. Yeah, at the, at the time of the alleged discovery uh, of that conduct, uh, the individual was a juvenile. And uh, for the listeners that don't understand the distinction, 16 years or less uh, ends up being a juvenile handled by the juvenile courts. 17 or greater ends up being an adult. Okay. And so, yeah, we've got some, we've got, we're talking about an uh, incident here where the offense is alleged to have occurred before this person turned 17, but it's just now been discovered or charged. And so when that happens, we have a unique procedure over in the juvenile courts where the juvenile court first must actually take the case, but the juvenile court has to determine simply whether to continue the case or to pass that case over to the adult court. And because this person's already aged out of the juvenile system, the way that these cases are filed is through a juvenile petition along with a request to certify or waive jurisdiction and have this person stand trial as an adult. When that happens, where we have somebody over 18 accused of a under 17 offense, that the law says that the judge can detain that person release that person, or set a bond. If they detain them, they detain them in the adult jail rather than the juvenile facility because they are now an adult. And so, people should know that just because you, quote, age out of the juvenile system, all the statutes of limitations still apply, and even if you commit an offense, even before you could be certified, uh, the statute still runs. And, and that's, a, that's a good point there, John. You know, the statute of limitations is the period of time in which the state may begin a prosecution. So for a lot of offenses, that's two years. For others, it's three, four, seven years. Um, things like murder, there's no statute of limitations, so they can bring that at any point in time. Um, and there's no statute now on sexual assault of children. That's a lifetime statute. Very true. Uh, so we have this now adult who's charged as a juvenile that gets taken into custody pursuant to a detention order. Uh, the juvenile judge also grants a bond. Okay? Now, the administrative nightmare that we find ourselves in, or at least our client finds himself in today in, for the last two days, 
is that nobody really knows what to do with this. Uh, the judge has issued an order saying sheriff's department is to accept this bond if a bondsman or other person comes to post the bond. And the sheriff's department is turning away the bondsman. Uh, Blackwood bail bonding is getting turned away and saying, we're not going to post a bond because we don't have an order from the court. Let me back up just, just a moment here. When you talk about setting a bond, the Texas um, statute, uh, the, um, the Constitution, Constitution uh, actually allows for a bond uh, in Texas except for certain offenses, capital murder, things like that. But in most offenses, uh, a person has an absolute right to have a bond set, a reasonable bond. Right, and that's not always going to apply in a juvenile case, so um, a little bit of a different spin there. But a typical adult accused of a crime has a right to a bond except for under certain very limited circumstances, including capital murders. Um, but in the juvenile system you've got this ability to either release, detain, or set a bond. And the juvenile court set a bond, but then nobody seems to know what to do with it. John, you worked over at the Sheriff's Department, and um, you're well, familiar at least a little bit with that process. What generally happens? Well, what happens is over at Central Records, when a bond is posted, you know, they have to process the paperwork. They have the paperwork from the court, a lot of times you just pull that stuff up in gyms. But of course, when you're dealing with the juvenile system, you don't have the full access. So when they get a bond, then they send the order to the floors. Hey, this guy's made bond. Pull him out, dress him out, get him released. Usually it takes anywhere from 12 to 24 hours, depending on the time of the week. But because they deal with so many hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper every year with bonds and warrants and other issues that all run through there, they're pretty rigid in their policies and they're not really flexible. And when you have an unusual circumstance like this where they may not particularly have been confronted with that before, they fall back on the policy which is mainly dealing with the adult issues in that we don't accept that paper. We wait for the paperwork coming over from the court. Right, you know. and typically what happens is when the court signs the order, the clerk in the court processes that order and then sends it over to the jail or to the sheriff's department, right. warrants division, for them to process it. So it typically in any adult case, the judge is going to sign it, then the clerk is going to process it, send it over to the sheriff's department, they're going to process it, and it runs pretty smoothly there, except for the delay of about 24 to 48 hours for that all to happen. Yeah, and, you know, they're running, what, uh, 150, 200,000 people a year through the county jail, and all those people are making bond, all those people have commitments, all those people have orders of release, and, uh, you know, and so you want to make sure... You don't miss it because if you do a deal where they have done in the past where they got it wrong and they let somebody out like on a murder case thinking <laughs> they were posting a bond on a misdemeanor, all hell breaks loose. Well, yeah, and certainly there should be some checks and balances. But how is it possible, where I'm just boggled here today, is how is it possible that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing and even though a judge has issued a valid court order setting bond, the clerk doesn't want to deliver that to the sheriff's department. The sheriff's department does not want to accept that order from anybody other than the clerk, but yet the clerk doesn't want to deliver it over there because it's unique and it's in a certain, you know, it's, it's something that's not done all that often. And so everybody's kind of sitting there going, well, that's not how we normally do this. No. In the meantime, the client sits in, the, in, in jail. In the meantime, now we right. have a, a person who's been sitting in jail for two days waiting for paperwork. Well, and of course the... And of course we haven't even got to post in the bond yet, which will take an additional 12 hours once the paperwork gets there. Right. The, the lower ranks, too, in their defense, they don't recognize the peril, and that basically you have someone that you no longer have a legal right to hold, and you're detaining them. And that's why, you know, I've contacted some of the county attorneys that represent the sheriff because they should immediately recognize what's going on. And I'm, I'm hoping with just a few phone calls we get this sorted out. 
Yeah, and that's a that's a good point. The county attorney's office, uh, body of lawyers who represent the county, they represent the sheriff's department, the sheriff, they represent the clerk's office, the district clerk. Um, they represent each one of these entities, and hopefully they'll be able to sort this out relatively quickly. Right. Uh, so this was just something that sort of happened today, and, and I just find myself completely boggled, uh, mind-boggled about how does this happen that the that nobody can process paperwork anymore. Uh, you know, and this so Earl had brought this up to me today, and I said, you know, well, we were going to talk about bonds anyway uh, because there's a federal lawsuit pending here in Harris County, um, and I want to kind of touch on that a little bit because we, we've been talking about this. Um, Sort of there's this administrative nightmare to bonds, but the problem in Harris County goes way beyond that administrative nightmare. It's the the hundreds of thousands of people that are run through the jail that John's talking about. Uh, that, that's the real problem when some of those people are housed in the jail and they should be out on bond. Well, yeah, and let's kind of... Uh, Back up a minute, I threw out this federal lawsuit, and I want to talk just a little bit about that. Um, you know, as you said a few minutes ago, Earl, the um, state of Texas, under our Constitution, says, except for very limited circumstances, that anyone accused of a crime has a right to a reasonable bond. Reasonable meaning affordable in some instances, in most instances, um, and Bond is for the purpose of assuring someone's appearance in court. It's not meant to be punitive. It's not meant to be a punishment. So, so we don't take, you know, a, a shoplifter and say, we're going to give you a million-dollar bond because that's excessive. It uh, doesn't assure their appearance in court. It simply assures that they stay in jail. Um, but so let's kind of swing back to this federal lawsuit. Uh Harris County uses what's called a bail schedule. That bail schedule is set by the judges. The county court judges set that schedule for misdemeanors, and the district court judges set that schedule for felonies. And what they have essentially done and have utilized for the past at least 25, 30 years is generally a schedule that rates each offense and, and sets a predetermined amount of bail for that particular offense, okay? So it ranges anywhere from $500 to $50,000. And, you know, $500 might be your first possession of marijuana case with no prior criminal history. You know, $1,000 maybe for a DWI, uh, you know, $10,000 for a felony, uh, $20,000 for a more serious felony, $50,000 for a murder. Uh, and so the, these, the schedule ranges... And what the federal lawsuit has essentially said is that that scheme is unconstitutional because it does not take into account any particular individualized bond for any particular person. It doesn't assure their appearance. It just slaps on a money amount. And it basically discriminates against uh, individuals that are poor that can't afford to make a $2,000 bond. And that's exactly um, where the lawsuit ended up, is that it is discriminatory, and it does contribute to people who, you know, are lower incomes or poor just simply sit in jail because they don't have $2,000 to post well, or 200 to pay a bondsman to and, post for them. And it's an easy way for people not to have to make a decision. That's the biggest problem with everything, whether from police work to courts, everybody. Nobody wants to make a decision anymore. But to give you an example, my wife used to run a warehouse. And she employed a lot of ex-convicts because it was the only job they could get, and most of them were pretty grateful for it and were good workers. She had one guy, he was probably 40 years old, who picked up an aggravated robbery when he was 17 and ended up doing like eight years in TDC. Hadn't been in trouble 15 years you know, after, since he got out uh, and picked up a DWI and because he had, quote, prior felony conviction, you know, they put like a $5,000 bond on him when normally it should have been 500 for first offense DWI, which, of course, then he can't make the bond. So he ends up losing his apartment and all that. And it's like, 
you know, the guy, except for when he was 17, he's been a pretty solid citizen for 15 years, but nobody wants to take that into account. They just like, okay, you know, I look in A and look in B, so the answer is C. Right, that's the schedule. You just follow the schedule. <clears throat> and what the law actually says is that bail or bond is supposed to be particularized to each person. Courts are supposed to look at each person that comes before the court and determine, is this person a flight risk? How much money should this person deposit with the court to assure that this person will return? You know, a $1,000 bond for one person may be exorbitant, but for somebody else might be they're willing to risk that $1,000 and may flee on it. Let's you know. say Sylvester Turner gets picked up for DWI tonight, okay? Does anybody really think Sylvester's going to run? Why couldn't he be released on a personal recognizance bond? I mean, and that's the thing. They don't use enough PR bonds where they could. I mean, when you've got somebody lived in Houston 35 years, owns their own home, gainfully employed, do you really think they're going to run on some misdemeanor offense? But they act like, oh, my God, we're going to have all these problems. And that's what I hear constantly from uh, a lot of folks in the judiciary is that they are concerned that someone's going to not show up for court. Uh, you know, and, and, and that is what the, the bond is supposed to do is make sure that they show up for court. But at the same time, most people who are arrested here locally, they're arrested locally because they live locally. But what they're doing is... They have is ties to the community. They have families. They have jobs. When you put them in jail and you don't afford them on a bond where they can get out, they run the risk of losing the home, like you said, losing the job, their uh, car. losing their car, losing their mode of transportation. Every single day that that person sits in jail, they lose a little bit more of their life and the ability to get it back. And if you think about it, what the courts have basically adopted with, well, we're worried about if they're going to come to court. You know, we're going to punish this guy who has ties in the community well-established because this guy has screwed up. This is in the Army where if one guy screws up, the whole platoon does push-ups. These are citizens, and too often people forget, even courts, you're public servants, and you're supposed to make these judgments calls. That's why they call you judges. It's all about judgment. And you should, you have all that discretion in that, and they, they need to start dealing with it. It probably just comes from people don't want to, you know, actually have to have the hearings. I think that's uh, a lot of it. I think the judges don't want to have actual hearings. It would take up a tremendous amount of yeah. resources and time. I think also well, there's a whole lot of, in Harris County, well, this is just the way we do it. That's the way we've always right. done it. And so since this bond schedule has been in place for at least 25, 30 years, everybody just kind of says, well, that's just the way we do it. And they don't consider any other option. Because that's the way we did it, and that's the way it's been working. So why change it? And I know the judges have crowded dockets, but a lot of these are self-inflicted wounds. For example, on these blood cases, you get somebody arrested for DWI. They make an appearance within the week. You know the blood's not going to be back for 60 or 90 days, and yet they set you off three to four weeks. And we go, well, we're not going to accomplish anything because the blood's not back. Well, sorry, you have to come down. Check and in. And that's exactly what happens in Harris County. And, and I know if, if you've listened to us at all, you've heard us complain about this before. These court appearances are set up so that people will show up every three to five weeks and just check in with the court in case something's going on. And what happens is we've said this for, you know, we being, you know, Harris County Criminal Lawyers Association, the defense bar in general, we've been saying this for 20-plus years. All that they're doing is trying to make it as inconvenient as possible so that people will give up and plead guilty even if they have a valid defense because they can't keep taking off work. They can't keep missing work and pay just to show up in court to check in when nothing's going to happen. Even, even if they're innocent, they're encouraged to go ahead and resolve that case so they can get back to their job and they can go to work. Uh, John, Joanne, both of y'all have uh, been like myself. You've made a lot of appearances in other counties throughout Texas. And Harris County is kind of a unique county. When it comes to that, uh, a lot of counties, you waive the arraignment. You don't have to show up the first week. 
the you hire a lawyer, the lawyer uh, waives your arraignment, uh, you send a letter to the court, and they put you on the docket. And then when they hear you, when, when your time comes on the docket, it's not just to sit in the courtroom and review files, it's to uh, file your motion to do all the things that uh, that you need that need to be done. So, you, uh, are you saying in other courts they use the courtroom for court purposes rather than just to check in? Absolutely. Novel idea. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break here. I want to remind our listeners that our call-in number is two eight one four four seven one 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 four, and we'll be right back with you. This is K-A-N-I-A-M, Wharton, Texas. K-A-N-I, Wharton, Texas. In one Texas. week, our car broke down and our roof started to leak. Wharton, we Texas. really needed money for repairs. I really needed to move to a bigger apartment. But with my credit card payments and other bills, I couldn't afford the security deposit. When over 100,000 people needed money this year, they turned to Avant. Avant was great. They relieved a lot of financial stress. I was approved for a personal loan through Avant. The next day, I had $4,000 in my account. Avant can get you the personal loan you need fast. It's simple to apply, and there's no risk because checking your rate with Avant has no effect on your financial score. Right now, Avant will also give you a $50 Amazon.com gift card after your first installment is made on time. To check your rates risk-free and get this special offer, go to Avant.com today and enter promo code 8888 at checkout. That's www.avant.com, promo code 8888. Loans are made by WebBank, a Utah industrial bank, equal housing lender, and by affiliates of Avant Incorporated. California loans offered by Avant will be made under financial lenders license number 603K124. Funds are generally deposited via ACH for delivery next business day if approved by 4.30 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Amazon is not a sponsor of this promotion. Other restrictions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Fred Hoyer coming to you about Bayshore Dodge Chrysler Jeep in Baytown, another Bayway company, part of the Bayway Auto Group. This month at Bayshore Dodge Chrysler Jeep, Chrysler 300 is $375 per month. Dodge Challenger SXTs, $399 per month. Dodge Chargers, $399 per month. Call Bayshore Dodge Chrysler Jeep today and ask for J.D. John Davis for these great deals. Call 281-421-6000. No credit, bad credit. Give Bayshore Dodge a call today and ask for J.D. John Davis. 281-421-6000. 281-421-6000. Don't forget the $1,000 price guarantee. Give J.D. a call today. Bayshore Dodge Chrysler Jeep in Baytown. Open Saturday. Bayshore Dodge Chrysler Jeep. I-10 East, North Main Exit in Baytown. Remember, receive a 40-inch flat-screen TV with any new or pre-owned purchase. Call JD 281-421-6000. miles per year lease. Tax title license and other fees to its own. Bayshore Dodge, another Bayway company. Hi, I'm Steve. And I'm Sharif. And we're the owners of Southern Q. If you're in the mood for some good barbecue, then stop by Southern Q Barbecue and Catering at our new location, 16540 Kirkendall in the spring area. We specialize in slow smoke East Texas style barbecue. We have all your favorites like brisket, ribs, and chicken. So when you're in the mood for some good barbecue, stop by 16540 Kirkendall or call 832-250-4851. And remember, you you deserve deserve good good barbecue. barbecue. John, uh, I want to remind our listeners that you can call in at 281-447-1114. You can also hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, Twitter at LegalSpeakMM and, or Facebook. Um, we were talking a little bit about uh, bail, but I want to change and, and talk about something I like to call junk science. I know you guys are a little familiar with this and um, want to interesting topic. About two weeks ago, Earl and I, or it might have been John and I, were talking about Dr. Gual over in the Harris County uh, Forensic Center. She was the blood analyst, uh, toxicologist, who had lied about her credentials and her resume. She claimed she had degrees in toxicology uh, from, uh, I think it was, I think it's University of Oklahoma, and it uh, turns out she doesn't really have a degree in toxicology, but she turns out she has a degree in uh, some sort of veterinarian medicine. Uh, and 
So there were a lot of questions about her credentials and a lot of questions about her work performance. Um, since that story broke about two weeks ago or so, she's resigned from the Harris County Crime Lab. Uh, she just sort of, you know, up and left and left those cases in limbo. Uh, but I don't know if you guys saw this, but, you know, I sit back and I think, what is going on with science or junk science in the criminal uh, criminal justice system when you have crime lab employees that are faking their credentials and then now yesterday, straight out of Dallas, DPS blood analyst, DPS Department of Public Safety, they run a crime lab. Their analyst, Chris Youngkin, uh, was on the stand testifying about his analysis of blood in a DWI case and under cross-examination took the Fifth Amendment and refused to answer wow. any additional <coughs> questions. Wow. Wow. Did wow the, is did, right. Did the state dismiss? No. Oh, my God. The judge gave him a reset and said, uh, we're going to give him an opportunity to talk to his attorney, and we'll pick up this hearing after he gets an opportunity to talk to his lawyer. So the biggest question in my mind is, who would ever expect the state's expert, the person they say this is a qualified expert in their field, to take the fifth, when questioned about how it is that he does his own job. And as we discussed uh, talking about the experts, these are individuals that the jury really relies on. Uh, judges in a, in a hearing like this, they're going to put a lot of uh, credibility in a uh, person that, that claims to be an expert. But what we're seeing is a lot of acclaimed experts aren't really what they claim to be. Well, and that's, I think it was you, Earl, that we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how jurors sit back and hear this testimony and, and believe it. You know, I mean, it, it's sort of like when you go to the doctor's office, you go to the doctor because he's a particular expert. He might be just a you know, family medicine doctor, and so he's going to be an expert in cold and flus. Uh, so you're going to go there because you got a cold or a flu. You've got a broken bone, you're going to go to the orthopedic because he's an expert in that field. Here we have what are supposed to be experts in toxicology, in gas chromography. How do you say that, John? Chromography. Uh, <laughs> put you on the spot. Chromatography. I can never get that right. You use you know, a, the people a gas that chromatograph. Use a gas chromatograph, fancy word for a little machine, that breaks down chemicals, and you look at the, the analyst is looking at these chemicals through laser light beams and all this other great stuff, and it tells them what substances make up that particular sample, if you will. So used to look at whether or not there's alcohol in uh, a blood sample, whether or not there's cocaine in a drug sample, whether or not, you know, those types of things. Um, and so we, the state presents these people in court as experts that they are the top of their field, they're the most knowledgeable, and you should believe them and trust them. You should rely on their evidence to convict. And yet we hear they're lying about their own credentials, they're taking the fifth when asked, how is it that you did your job? You, you don't want to tell us well, how you did your job? It, it all starts with this whole thing where I can't believe it, but they do it. Administrators subscribe to the television theory of running a law enforcement agency. It's like when I started with the sheriff's office, when you had a crime scene, it was processed by the identification division. Why identification? Because their job was to identify evidence and offenders, you know? But then after CSU or... CSI, whatever came on TV, then everybody's got to change it. Well, it's the same thing. All these people that used to testify about blood and about breath, they were analysts because that's all they are. I mean, you can spin it any way you want, but if you basically take a sample, put it in a machine, hit a button, and wait, you know, several hours till it spits out a result, that's an analyst, all right? But they've renamed these things from the crime lab to 
Forensic Science Center. And then they get up and say, I'm a scientist. Well, it's what experiments are you doing? Because that's what scientists well, do. And that's a good question. I mean, and I'll have to go back to Big Bang Theory here. I mean, right. I watch that show. These are <laughs> scientists, you know, or supposedly. You know, I mean, right. obviously it's TV. But they're working at a university. They're doing they have a lot of comedy, but they're doing yeah. tests. They're working, you know, with... Experiments, experiments proving hypotheses. You know, the, the girlfriend, I, I can't think of her name. It escapes me. See, I picked this example, and then Penny I can't even Amy. think of the name. Um, Amy. <laughs> right. She's, you know, she's got lab rats and lab monkeys, and she's doing experiments. You've got, you know, everybody working on developing research and experiments. Those are scientists. And you, right. you make a, a great point when you say, we're asking somebody to put something in a machine, push a couple buttons, and wait on the machine to spit out a result. Right. Is that science? No. And and that's the thing. You can literally ask them, how long have you been with DPS? Well, 14 years. Well, when you hired, what was your position? Uh, analyst. Analyst. Okay. <laughs> and now you're a forensic scientist? Yeah. Well, yeah, because CSI and CSI Miami yeah. told us that's what these people have to be. Yeah. And that if, if we call them scientists... Uh, and we call them toxicologists, and we call them experts, they have some way of seeing things that the rest of us can't see. Yeah. And, and Joanne, I may be wrong, but uh, uh, correct me if I am. The expert in Dallas, they were asking him about what procedures he followed in running the tests that gave him the results that he was trying to testify to. Uh, and when John talked about, you know, pushing a button, uh, certainly... We understand the importance of, of following a strict procedure. It's when these so-called scientists decide that they're going to shortcut this. Uh, the Houston lab, several years ago, when the DNA problems, they, they didn't want to go through all of the process of the uh, procedures, and so they, they jumped over here and came up with results. That results actually sent an innocent individual to prison. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're talking about here is, you know, labs, and this is, you know, I'm going to kind of limit this to crime labs, crime labs that are predominantly used for law enforcement purposes. So the DPS crime lab, it's not like those folks that work there are out writing research, getting grants, uh, you know, performing analysis on a large scale, performing experiments. They're sitting in a a lab, and they only deal with samples submitted to them by law enforcement for criminal justice purposes, right? right. And you've got the Harris County Forensic Institute, or Institute, Institute of Forensic... Institute of Forensic Science. Institute of Forensic Science. <coughs> and Impressive. they pretty much do the same thing where the bulk of their work is for law enforcement purposes. And then you have the... I still call it the HPD crime lab, but it's the Houston Forensic Science Center, who is no longer part of HPD, but yet they're still housed in the HPD building. And HPD is fighting, trying to get them back. Exactly. <laughs> and HPD wants them back, and the HPD officers from the crime scene units are assigned to work over in the lab. Big, confusing, much to do about nothing. It's the Houston Police Department crime lab, whatever they want to call it. But the crime lab, again... This is not a lab that's performing experiments, doing research. They are simply looking at evidence submitted by police officers, by law enforcement, for the sole purpose of attempting to verify a conviction. All right. Yeah. I'm still, and this was the first I heard about this deal in Dallas, but people have to seriously question a prosecutor's office that when the state's witness on the blood test takes the Fifth Amendment, meaning he knows, I mean, what he knows is he did not conform to proper procedure. Correct. But he has sworn to that or certified it by submitting that lab report. So he has tampered with a governmental record with the intent to harm or defraud somebody, a third-degree felony, punishable by 2 to 10. And when he does that on the stand, why the state doesn't move to dismiss the case. I mean, my God. Uh, as You just have to wonder. It just really reinforces that they regularly ignore 
2.01 of the Code of Criminal Procedure, their job is to seek justice. Not conviction. That's right. And it's a win at all costs, and they have to understand you are not representing the Department of Public Safety. You are the lawyer for the state of Texas, and when your witness says he's basically committed a crime and he can't testify to it, it's time to get out of that case. Yeah, and that's that's what I find, you know, equally troubling here is you've got this expert who's going to take the fifth. We all know taking the fifth means you can't answer it because the answer would incriminate you. You can't just take the fifth like, hey, what's your name? Or I take the fifth. That's not incriminating. Right. You can only take the fifth on a question that would incriminate you. And so this witness, Chris Youngkin, believes whatever it is he was about to say would incriminate him. It would be tantamount to a confession to crime if he answered that question. And so it's, you make a, you raise a really good point, John, when you say, what's going on with the DA's office that they didn't just stand up and say, whoa, time out, judge, we need to dismiss this case because we no longer believe in our scientists. We no longer believe in our expert. There's something sinister going on here, and we need to figure out what it is. I think John hit it on the head when, when he said that uh, – this guy has certified that he followed proper procedures and came to the conclusion that he came to. Uh, obviously, he didn't, and he swore to that, and that's that's a criminal act. Yeah, it's it could have been he used the same pipette on two different tests. It could well, have been a number of things that he hadn't calibrated the instrument or run a blank sample. Yeah, and he's, I've heard, uh, I don't have, you know, a lot of the details in this case because it, it, they had to recess the case, but I've heard from some other lawyers that work up in the Dallas area that at least in the past, he has been found to have mixed up samples, reporting one sample as like a point zero, meaning no alcohol, and then reported a second sample as a point one five, twice the legal limit, but switched the two somehow reported the innocent person as guilty and the guilty person as innocent. So he's he has made, he's been found to have made mistakes in the past. He's and been they, found not to be credible. Well, that's, and that's the thing is, you know, when they submit this, it, I get it that mistakes happen. Accidents can happen. Uh, but they are getting on the stand and testifying, I followed every procedure properly. I hold the correct credentials. I have mastered this technique, and I've, you know, followed the procedure faithfully. And with, so when this machine tells me that someone's intoxicated, you can trust it 100%. And that's just not the case. But, you know, and it gets to if he was not credible in one case, why didn't the prosecutor do a report? And he's flagged as a witness. But we had that recent case where it turns out the uh, arresting officer was facing criminal charges. And we didn't learn about that till the day of trial. And even then it was, well, he's under investigation, although he had been filed on two months before. I mean, it's sad. Yeah, and let me kind of back up and set this up for just a second, John, because you okay. hit on a great point here. Um, the state, and we've talked about this on several of our uh, shows, the state has a duty to disclose what's called Brady, comes from a criminal case, but what's what we call Brady or exculpatory or mitigating evidence. Evidence that tends to help the defendant, okay, by either showing that he might not be guilty, showing that maybe someone else is guilty, or maybe mitigating what the punishment ought to be for this person. State has a duty to disclose that. And so in this particular case that you're talking about, John, we rock along and our client's headed to trial. And so just to sort of set this up too, typically a trial is anywhere from 8 to 15 months after the person is arrested. So we're talking about a year has gone by and we're ready for trial. The state has continued to persist in prosecuting somebody, our client, um, and on the eve of trial, uh, trial's Monday morning on, I believe it was Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, right. the prosecutor sends a fax that says, oh, by the way, and I'll just use Officer Smith, uh, Officer Smith, who we will rely on in this case, 
is under investigation for improper conduct. Which was really interesting because, okay, they're supposed to let us know. It's as if they just somehow, they being the state, just somehow all of a sudden gleamed the fact that this person was under investigation. What it did not reveal and what we learned is that this person wasn't under investigation anymore. This person was already under indictment, meaning a grand jury had already met, had found probable cause, issued an indictment. He had already had a warrant issue. He had already been arrested and then posted bond. He'd already been pending court for months. His, his so case was pending. His case and, was he's um, under indictment he for was, a pending criminal charge, and the state's just going to kind of allude to, well, he's under investigation for some misconduct. No, it, he's charged with a crime. And it, it's also important, I think, that the that the case that he was indicted under was also the, the case that the defendant that we were going to represent was charged in. So uh, not only do you have the state not giving uh, uh, timely uh, discovery in, in this case. You have um, a case that's set in the trial court, and uh, we all know that, that not every case can go to trial. So you have the judges that's trying to get their docket in order, set aside time to try a case, and the case that we were talking about trying would have probably taken two, possibly three days of the court's time where the court couldn't hear other cases all because of this. So um, it, it really has an effect when uh, discovery's not given and you're not taken out of the system. Yeah, and that's... Well, and it's sad because... Now, one more thing on our pretrial checklist is run the officer's criminal history. Yeah, Don't ask yeah. the DA, is there anything you know? I mean, we actually have to go run the criminal history to see if he's got any pending charges. Yeah, and you would assume... Most police officers don't have criminal history. You would that hope, is yeah. no, well, you'd hope, but that is no longer a safe assumption because the, the dis district attorney's office had already issued their subpoenas, provided their witness list, claiming they were going to call this person, this police officer, to testify when they knew he was under indictment for his own criminal conduct. Yeah, it's, it's atrocious. And I know that kind of takes us a little out of where we started with the junk science, but I think it was a really good point. Uh, we're going to take another break here. Remember our call-in number, 281-447-1114. This is Legally Speaking with Music and Music, and we'll be right back with you. Hello, this is Fred Hoyer coming to you from Volkswagen New Woodland, located on I-45 North at exit 79A on the feeder. This month at Volkswagen New Woodland, BW Jetta, 129 a month. BW Passat, 219 a month. Call Lowell Williams today at 936-321-6500, 936-321-6500. Remember, when you purchase a new or pre-owned car from Volkswagen New Woodland and Lowell Williams, you receive a 40-inch flash screen TV with your purchase. Also, come check out our new mega-use car center at Volkswagen of the Whippings, from Ford trucks, Ram trucks, Nissans, Hondas, Toyotas, Mercedes, BMW, you name it, we have it at Volkswagen of Whippings. So call Laura Williams today at 936-321-6500. Good credit, bad credit, not a problem. Give Laura a call today and let her make it happen for you at Volkswagen of the Whippings. Open Saturdays. Call Laura Williams at Volkswagen of the Whippings, 936-321-6500. 36-month lease, 10,000 miles per year, 2300 U.S. Volkswagen of the Woodlands, some of Railway Company. The legendary Ralph Cooper returns to AM Radio. Wharton, Sugarland, Missouri City, Stafford, Richmond, Rosenberg, Katy. Stay tuned for date and time. The legendary Ralph Cooper is coming your way. The legendary Ralph Morning Cooper Show returns each morning, to 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. with David Austin. The show that will challenge you with provocative conversation, news, sports, entertainment, celebrity news, and much, much more. KJOZRadio.com, where diversity has found its voice. Join us for our evening drive show, Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. with April Creation. 
a show that approaches a variety of topics being offered by females who have a handle on relevant issues of the day. KJOZradio.com, where diversity has found its voice. Are you a small business looking for financial support? Have you tried other financial institutions only to find out your business is too small to get a loan? Integrity Bank is here to help you. Integrity Bank is a preferred SBA lender and all loans are in-house and offers on-site approval. Take your business to the next level by giving Integrity Bank a call. 713-335-8700. 713-335-8700. Or visit iBankTX.com. Also take advantage of their free check-in with no monthly service charge. NSF fees and other service fees apply. If additional services are used, member FDIC. Joanne Music, your host. I'm here in the studio today with Earl Music and John Denholm. We've had some lively discussion today. I want to remind our listeners of our phone number, 281-447-1114. You can call in with your questions. Happy to try to get you answers to those. You can also find us on all social media, Twitter, at LegalSpeakMM, uh, or at Joanne Music. You can also find us on Facebook at Legally Speaking. Uh, we've had uh, some great discussion here today, and I want to kind of turn now to something that I saw that came out of Baltimore that uh, I want to tie to some local practices here in Houston. The Just recently, the grand, a grand jury up in Baltimore was allowed to participate in what we call a lethal force simulator, a firearm simulator course, uh, so that they could better understand the complexities of police work uh, and what was interesting about this, so, so let me set it up for just a second. These grand jurors are placed into a firearms training simulator where they have a fake gun, if you will. It's, I don't know exactly their setup, so I'll just call it a fake gun. But, and they're placed into kind of a live video game, and you're watching on the video a, a scenario unfold, and the grand juror themselves decides shoot or don't shoot, Right. And so the, sim, the situation they're placed in is supposed to be something that a police officer would routinely or regularly face on the street so that the grand jurors can better understand that. What I found interesting is these particular grand jurors came away with a very distinct impression that officers were underpaid, that officers were overworked, that officers deserved our sympathy uh, and better pay. That, uh, when I say our sympathy meaning the citizen sympathy. And so when police officers' cases are brought before grand jurors as to whether or not they should be indicted for a shooting, the grand jurors gave them a little more sympathy and said, you know, gosh, now we understand uh, what's going on in in a police officer's world. And the reason I bring this up, I know that's out of Baltimore, but for years our Harris County District Attorney's Office has operated... Um, They call it FATS, F-A-T-S. It's a firearms training simulator. Uh, They've operated this training simulator in the basement of the Criminal Justice Center. They use it for their uh, their own training for the investigators who work with the department. They also offer it to other smaller police agencies in and around Harris County to come in and use the training. But they've been offering it as a sort of grand jury orientation fun day, if you will. So the grand jurors are brought in and offered to participate in the firearms training. And to set this up just a little bit, I know, John, you've been in there. I've been in there. Earl, have you been in this one? Yes. Okay. So it's a room sort of set up like a little auditorium. At the back of the room are seats uh, sort of set up like a little auditorium. 
But in the front half of the room, there's a big open space. The person who's going to participate is standing there in the open space. There's a large uh, floor-to-ceiling screen in front of them that uh, has a little wraparound angle to it so you get kind of a full immersion effect, and you're watching a video. You are holding a gun that is actually a real firearm. The firearm has been modified. Instead of shooting bullets, it has a CO2 cartridge in it. And so the CO2 cartridge, when you pull the trigger, it actually fires, but it's firing basically a puff of air, and the, the electronics behind this system will actually show you where on screen you shot, where you hit, and what happened. So the grand juror is placed in this position of watching a video, and the grand juror's holding the gun as if they're the police officer, and then they are deciding shoot or don't shoot. And if they are deciding to shoot, they actually pull the trigger, and if they hit a person the way that they aimed and shot, that person on screen will spew blood. So, I mean, it's, it's very realistic. This is, you know, a great video game that's better than Grand Theft Auto. You know, these are uh, real-life situations that react very realistically. And there's been a lot of controversy over whether or not the district attorney's office ought to be using this for grand jury orientation purposes. I, I have mixed feelings about it, and I'll just start there. A grand jury is supposed to be made up of average citizens, average citizens from the community who decide whether or not cases should go forward in court, felony cases. Um, their role initially was to protect citizens from an overreaching government. So the government could not just indict you with a crime. It requires, under our Texas Constitution, a grand jury to issue the indictment in a felony case. So unless your citizens agree you should be prosecuted, then the prosecution cannot continue. But So what we see now, sort of having set that up, is People complain that this gives officers in the grand jury who might be facing their own potential for criminal charges for after a shooting, gives them an advantage. You've taken these citizens, the grand jury, put them in the officer's shoes, and so now the grand juror has some sympathy for the officer. And they sit there and think, well, I might have shot, so maybe the officer's all right, and I should clear the officer in this case. Here's my biggest problem with that theory, though. The officers and the grand jurors are not the same. You can take an average person and place them in that simulator and ask them, shoot or don't shoot, and they're going to make a decision. But they do not have the training and experience that a police officer has. How long is the police academy? It's, uh, I want to say it's like, puts about in 700 six. hours anymore. It's over 600. I think it's... 660, 680. Yeah, I mean, like it's, it's months of training. Um, so depending how, how full the day is, these are six months or more of training um, in an academy where the police officer who's in training is not on the street, so they're not responding to call. I mean, they're in a classroom. They're in a laboratory, if you will. They're learning what they should do and how to do it. And, and when they learn that in the academy, then they're placed on the street with a uh, with an officer that's experienced, and they have to learn how to uh, to view things. Well, that's when what you I was talk about add. the shooter, you don't shoot. Uh, the first thing I thought of was uh, when I was a, a rookie, a brand new officer with the Houston Police Department, and uh, luckily I was riding with a very experienced officer. We ran a disturbance call at a lounge. Upon arrival at the lounge, um, I got out of the car and I acted just like they, they want you to act in the academy. And I was approaching the crowd of people. It was supposed to be a disturbance. And, uh, of course, when we arrived, there wasn't any disturbance. But all of a sudden, my partner had gotten out of the car, and he tells the person that I'm approaching to drop the gun. And, and I thought, oh, my God, how did he know? that the guy had a gun. And, and of course, luckily, the, the guy didn't want to use the gun on me, or I would have been a dead duck the very first month on the street. 
but um, he dropped the gun. And I got back in the car and I said, how did you know that that guy had a gun? And he said, well, when we pulled up, you need to look at the crowd. You need to watch the crowds. Everybody was looking at this one guy. So I knew that he had to be the source of the disturbance. So I kind of focused on him, and then I was able to see that he had a concealed gun. And that's interesting because in the grand jury process where you've got this shoot or don't shoot situation, you don't have the grand jurors not been through training as a, through the academy. But and they're experts, not, just like the, uh, well, the blood say, experts. Yeah, <laughs> but they also have not been through what we call FTO field training um, for police officers, like you're like you and John both went through. When you first come out of the police academy, you don't just get turned loose with a gun. You get assigned to a senior officer who's going to teach you the things they couldn't teach you in the academy, and right? John had an, had an advantage on me because he had been in the Army in the MPs and had actually uh, been a police officer uh, before, before becoming a police officer. Yeah, pretty much the same thing in the Army. You stop cars and that. Of course, you also get to go do that good stuff like direct tanks on a trail at night where they'd make you jump in the ditch. <laughs> but, uh, but no, talking about the firearm simulator, uh, and what you're both saying about they haven't been trained, you're sitting out there in front of these screens, it's like a three-sided projector, and you're feeling kind of naked out there, and uh, you haven't had a chance to, you know, take five or ten minutes driving there to start going over your scenarios. You don't even know what the call is going to be about. Right. You probably haven't had uh, an active shooter course or some type of street survival school. Uh, when you don't have cover, that, you get pretty lonely out there if you're stuck out. You know, like you're chasing somebody and he suddenly turns on you. You, you do. You feel very vulnerable. But most of the time, that's not going to happen. Most of the time, these things you're going to... Uh, be revolving around either making an entry to a building or you're getting out of your vehicle. And, I mean, there's a reason you don't go past what's called the B pillar, which is the pillar between the front door and the back door. And you look at, uh, and what I found from investigating shootings when I worked in homicide was a lot of the times at the very moment the officer pulled the, the trigger, absolutely justified. The guy needed shot. The problem was, most of the times you didn't need to get up there if you'd followed your tactics. You know, you look at that shooting out in Minnesota where he shot that concealed handgun uh, holder in the front seat after asking him to show me some ID. Uh, he's standing up in what's called the kill zone, which is right there in the passenger window. That's why you're supposed to stay back because it gives you that extra second to see what's going on, puts the other person at the disadvantage because they got to turn around. To confront you that which gives you more warning but yeah i'd be curious to know if in tulsa where the officer was indicted where they shot the guy on the disabled vehicle uh if those grand jurors had been run through this firearm simulator as opposed to the people in baltimore and harris county because that's the second officer that da has indicted up there on questionable shootings and he did get uh did get conviction on one so it makes you wonder if there was some, um, you know, training for the grand jury, right. or if they were allowed to use their common sense and ask serious questions like, well, I understand, officer, you're a drug recognition expert and you believe he's on PCP, but if you felt threatened, why are you approaching him? And if you got four officers there, why can't he be tased and taken down? Because he wasn't holding a pistol, you know. He was unarmed. And, yeah, and, and first, let me make it clear. Until you fought somebody on drugs, man, they can be a load. But when you got four officers there, you ought to be able to handle it because you're talking about 800 pounds of policemen. Well, and, and what you're talking about too there is that you've got you know training expertise, you've got cover, you have assistance. When you run through these grand jury simulators, these firearm simulators, you don't have backup. You don't have cover. They have a situation where you alone are coming around the corner into a situation and you have no backup and no forewarning as to what's going on. You also have the expectation that someone 
the, and that simulator is going to shoot you. Well, yeah, so yeah you're, you're also up set up. Yeah, you're set up from the very beginning to say, you know what, we're gonna this. I'm fixing to be put in a situation where I'm going to have to decide to shoot or not. Um, and so, and that's not what the officer is going through every day, and it's not the training that the officer has received. Well, I'm looking at the clock here, and I see we're out of time for today. I want to thank everybody for joining us. The um, music and music, legally speaking, we're here every week from 2 to 3. You can call in during the week, I mean, or call in during the show, and we'll answer your questions. You can also hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, uh, Instagram, any of the social media sites. Find us, uh, ask us questions, and share us with your friends. Thank you very much. Opinions expressed on KJOZ Talk programs are solely those of the individual host.